Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, and welcome along to episode 20 of the Howie Games. Now, firstly, from the entire team at the Howie Games, which admittedly is only me, the pickle, the big penguin, and our gun producer, Michael James, we want to thank all of you this week for taking the Howie Games to the number one position on the iTunes Australia podcast charts. Crazy, but very, very cool. So thanks. Now, this week, a bit of excitement in the camp. In fact, a lot of excitement in the camp. Our Big Bash specials continue with the man, the man, Ricky Ponting. Where do you start with Ricky Ponting? 168 tests, 375 one-day internationals, 71, 71 international hundreds, twin tons in his 100th test, three World Cup wins, the only player to be part of 100 test match wins, and possibly above all that, a potential singing career after his singing of the Barmy Army song about Mark War in this year's Big Bash. I first met Ricky Ponting when he arrived at Channel 10 after they signed up the BBL. Everyone at 10 was really, really nervous about meeting Rick, and no more so than me. It's Ricky Ponting after all. Along with Damien Fleming, we sat in a studio to do a commentary rehearsal. Rick absolutely nailed it from the start and has blown away people with his commentary ever since. But even better than that for mine is the fact Australia and the world, in fact, has got to know the real Ricky Ponting, the cheeky, funny, down-to-earth fellow who loves his family, his mates, golf, having a punt on the dogs, just a really down-to-earth guy. In this episode, Punter talks about where he got that nickname, his favourite cricket moments, toughest losses, lessons learnt, family and much, much more. The man is a legend. Enjoy. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Well, Ricky Ponting, I know. I know you've wanted to be on the Howie Games for a long time. Now you get your opportunity, don't you, hey? I've been sneaking away, haven't I? Yeah, Just sneaking away from you. We've had a couple of, You pulled up sick a couple of times, but we're ready to go now. Uh, this one goes out tomorrow, so it should be good, mate. Sitting here, we're off to the cricket shortly. Um, you know, you've got a beautiful family. You're not struggling for a dollar. You've got a good job. I guess life's been pretty good as far as cricket It's looked after you, hasn't it, I? Well, it has, yeah. I mean, it wasn't always that way either, Howie. Things weren't always... Mm. That way, growing up, you know, I sort of grew up on the, the wrong side of the tracks, if you like, in the northern suburbs of, of Tassie, and, you know, nothing ever really came easily to us as a, as a family or anything growing up, but sport was sport was always there, you know, it was, was in the family, it was in my blood, and, um, you know, from a very young age, it was pretty clear that sport was going to be where my life was going to take me, and, you know, had uh, I worked hard and had a few little breaks along the way and had some great support and, um, you know, a great club environment to grow up in, and... Here I am now, you know, as a 42-year-old that has yeah. made a, a good living out of the game. So it's uh, it all worked out quite nicely. What were you like at school? Were you an academic No, I was type? okay at school. Yeah, I was okay at school, but it was always you know, secondary for me, I guess. I was mm. always looking forward to the lunch break to get out on the oval or kick the footy or play cricket or whatever. But no, I, I was good enough at school. I probably could have made something else of my life if it wasn't just for cricket. So what did your mum and dad do? Uh, varying jobs. Dad had lots of different jobs. Um, you know, when I was a young bloke, he, he worked in the mines when he was a bit younger. He worked at the, on, the, in, on the railways. He's like a, um, you know, someone that repaired the, the, the tracks and the trucks and stuff right. um, and the railways. That was sort of the, the main job he had when I was growing up. Um, you know, mum worked odd jobs as well. She was like a curtain maker. She worked in service stations. She did all that sort of stuff. You know, they, my parents did enough just to, you know, to be able to get us get us through but um yeah it wasn't as i said it was, it was tough we lived in housing commission homes most of my life i sort Did of moved, yeah I, so i moved uh even after a couple of years of shoe cricket i was still living in the family home which was um in uh, in Rochelle, which is the housing commission place and i moved out of there when i sort of saved up enough money through sheffield shoe cricket to buy my own house moved into my own home so i was probably i don't know early 20s i suppose by the time i, I moved out of there and so is that reasonably rough around the edges sort of northern tassie at that stage yeah, reasonably, yeah. yeah you didn't okay. want to be out after dark too much right. and, and that sort of thing, yeah. You know, you had to lock your bikes away and all that sort of stuff at night. And, yeah, you know, we were sort of in and around um, some interesting characters, I guess, in the, in the area that mm. we lived. But that's just the way it was, you know. It was, you know, we never got, never got in any trouble or have never had sort of too much happen to us. We had the family home broken into a couple of times, that sort of thing. But, um, no, luckily, we, uh, you know, we never had too much, too much trouble and, as I said, I guess for all of our family, really, sport was the, the one thing that we all sort of enjoyed. My brother was a good sportsman as well and still a very good golfer these days. My sister played a bit of state junior golf and things. So, yeah, sport was what we had on the weekends and that's what kept us um, occupied, yeah. So what were your first memories of cricket? Oh, the same as most young Australian kids growing up, just the backyard, the local park, you know, playing with my brother or my dad in the, in the backyard and 
or trying to find a, a park around the area where you could invite a few others to come along and join into a, a pretty big game. Um, you just wanted to bat and bat and bat, I presume? Yes, yeah, that was it, yeah. Right. My brother never did too much batting in the backyard. Right. Right. He, he, he actually turned out to be a reasonable bowler because he had to bowl so much <laughs> as, a, as a kid. But, no, that's what it was. You know, we had... Uh, yeah, it was a great, a great family upbringing. No doubt about that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change one thing about it. To tell the mm. truth, you know, we, we always had the, you know, the big vegetable garden in the backyard that Dad took a lot of pride in, and backyard cricket for us was the same as <laughs> any other family. But yeah, yeah, my brother, he bowled for a couple of weeks at a time sometimes. <laughs> a couple of weeks. And then he'd. Uh, I'd finally find it in my heart to get out, and then he'd, he'd have a bat and I'd knock him over first or second ball. Then it might turn to go back in again. So no, it was. Uh, no, they're the. I guess that's what they're the the memories I have of the game. You know, little things like that. Looking back now, even just the the smell of cut grass and smell of aerogard and things like that. You know, they're the things that come back about junior cricket for me. When did you start to think you're better than the other kids? Was that when you were six or ten or twelve or fifteen? Or did you not think that? I don't know if I did think it, no. I had lots of people telling me that I was even. Um, did you? Yeah, well, when I went to the academy and, you know, Rod Marsh had sort of identified that he thought I was, you know, probably a bit better than most other kids that he'd seen and things like that. But, yeah, it was just about it was just about playing and about batting and, you know, things have happened that I've been told, you know, as years have gone by about influences that I'd had on even the game junior, the junior game in Tassie that I wasn't aware of I mean they changed the rules in junior cricket because of me because I didn't I didn't get it I wasn't dismissed in two years of primary school cricket I didn't get out <laughs> so they, they brought in this retirement rule where you had to retire at 30 and you, you know you couldn't make any more runs than that the punting rule yeah that, well, I wasn't I didn't know okay. but th- these are things that had happened um, as a result so you know, I played under 13 carnivals and things where we used to play five 50-over games on the, each day of the week. And uh, the first one of those I played, I think, as an 11-year-old, I made 400s out of the five games. And then the next week was the under-16 carnival, and I was, as I said, 11. So and I was playing under-16s as well, and I made 200s in those games. And I think it was sort of then where it was probably I was starting to realise that I might have been just a little bit better than my age group at the, at the time, I suppose. And, and it wasn't long after that that I got my first bat sponsorship and things. And at every, what age? Uh, I think I was 12, I think, when I got my first bat sponsorship. And Kookaburra? Kookaburra, yeah. So did a couple of bats arrive in the mail? I would have thought as a 12-year-old you'd be jumping out of your skin. Oh, mate, you've never seen anything like it. I mean, it was yeah, just a kit, a kit of gear. It, was, it might have even been one bat at the time, a bat and a couple of pairs of gloves and a pair of pads and just a nice big kit bag. And Yeah, that, I mean, that was, pretty, that was pretty cool, you know, to have all that new flash gear. Because I never had that before, you know. I always just had pretty basic, as you can imagine, with the stories I just told you, always pretty basic sort of cricket gear that we had but um yeah when the new stuff turned up it was uh, i looked after that pretty well don't yeah worry. i bet you did and your uncle greg mm. was a he went on the ashes tour that where they they won four nil didn't they? i think he might have played the first test i presume he you would have been seeing him as a young bloke how much how old were you when he was starting to play at that level yeah well i followed him around as a young bloke right. to tell the truth i mean he played at the club that i was going to play at he played at the mobile career club and you know, then went on to play for Tassie and then went on to play for Australia and that was the exact path that I wanted to follow. So, you know, I had, you know, along with Booney, who was playing for Australia at the time, I had a couple of guys that I could sort of chase after and I remember when Greg got selected on that 89 Ashes tour and all his, uh, all his gear turned up at his family home and the baggy green was in his bag with his, you know, Aussie jumper and shirts and stuff and quite often would sneak out into his bedroom when he wasn't home and just put the cap on and have a bit of a play with all his equipment and <laughs> make sure I folded it all back up perfectly so I went back in the right spot. He didn't know that I'd been in there. but uh, yeah, I mean, I remember picking that cap up for the first time and and I didn't, even, I didn't put it on straight. I picked it up and smelt it and felt it first and then, then stuck it on my head. But, uh, yeah, so that, that in itself sort of made... I guess the re- the realization that it's possible for me to be able to do the same thing and made it a little bit clearer, a little bit, you know, it was almost like I could reach out and grab it and feel it. That you know, if I did the right things, that maybe a chance for to play for Australia might come along for me as well. So, did you play for Tassie first or go to the academy first? No, I went to the academy. I went. I basically left. I left school at after year ten because I'd been given a, a scholarship to go to the academy the following April. So we finished school in December. I'd accepted the um, the scholarship to go to the academy in, in Adelaide in April and. Um, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna let that opportunity slip. You know, I was only 15 at the time. But um, big move, 15 year old out of pretty sheltered part of Tassie. I would have thought it was a big move. Yeah, because I was, you know, I was moving away with, you know, not much behind me. I was pretty, pretty wet behind the ears still, yeah. and hadn't seen the big, you know, the big world that was out there waiting for, 
for all of us uh, young blokes, I guess, as cricketers, and I was, I was going away to, to live with other guys that were 21, 22 years of age as well. So there's a big age, age gap and probably a big skill gap as well between what they were doing with their cricket and where I, you know, where I was. But that wasn't going to stop me. It wasn't going to hold me back. I, I knew that, you know, if it, was, if it came down to cricket and cricket only, that I could, I'd be able to manage against the bigger boys. No worries at all. So who were some of the bigger boys at the academy then? McGrath was was there actually. Warney came over first year that w- that I was there as well on a scholarship. He'd just been picked uh, on his first Australian tour. So um, how was he when he rolled into the academy? It was a bit different. Yeah, him, <laughs> him rocking up with us. I mean, he'd he'd uh, played a few years of state cricket by then and was on his first Australian tour to Sri Lanka. So you know, I remember sitting in a car with him one day and his cricket Australia contract had arrived and it was sitting in the front of his car. And here's me. I was earning forty dollars a month at the cricket academy. Um, and Warnie's Cricket Australia contract had turned up and he had a brand new car and he's driving us around Adelaide in his car and stuff. Yeah, it was a little bit different. But uh, once again, those things were good to see because you, you knew that if mm. you could make the most of what you had, then these things might come along as well. So, um, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, Rob Marsh was the head coach and Dennis Lilly be there every other week and Ian Chappell and Greg Chappell and those guys. And were you in awe of these blokes or was it just sort of... That's what you had to do, and these are the blokes you had to roll with to achieve what you wanted to achieve. No, of course I was. I was, I was loving every moment of it. I mean, I couldn't get up early enough in the morning, and I'd oh. stay. I'd be the first one, obviously, like I was right through my career. But I'd be the first one in the nets and on the training field or whatever, and always the last one to leave. And he's um, asking questions and hoping that the guys, had, you know, the coaches, had come and have a chat to you about what they saw with your game. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was the best, I, and I was there for two years. It was the best couple of years probably that I that I had because you were just living and breathing cricket and you're working working out what it was going to take to become a you know a good professional cricketer because it was a, a fair bit different than what all of us would have been doing back in our home states especially in the off season you know we were you'd go to the footy on the weekend catch up with your mates and maybe you know go for a run or hit a couple of cricket balls once or twice a week but this was twice a day six days a week it was pretty intense stuff that aversion to running hasn't changed I texted you three hours ago and said you want to go for a run and you just came straight back with a nope yeah, well, I think I probably, if you had asked me then, I probably would have gone. Right. <laughs> you had asked me 25, right. 25 years ago, I probably would have gone. But Was it was it, um, was it Warnie that gave you your nickname? It was, actually, yeah. yeah. And that was on the back of the $40 a month that we were earning. That wasn't going far. No. As you can imagine, you know, a dollar a day was a bit can of Coke and a packet, <laughs> packet of chips a day if you're lucky. So <laughs> there wasn't much else that... So, um, you know, it was in my blood as well to have a bit of a, have a, bit of a punt, so I'd sneak off down to the... The local TABs and on a Monday and a Thursday night and try at, and at age fifteen and sixteen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was hanging out with a couple of bigger boys. Though, Obviously, trying to grow whatever facial hair I could to, <laughs> to make sure I didn't look too too much out of place. But uh, yeah, so that's where it started. It started, you know, it used to be dollar each way bets and things on the dogs to turn that try and turn that forty dollars into fifty or sixty dollars a month, and then and Warney sort of got onto that, and uh, yeah, that's where the nickname sort of uh, eventuated. And she's stuck, didn't it? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm probably more known by that name now than I am my, my actual name, which is, uh, that's fine with me. Your first game for Tasmania, I presume, as you said, uh, Booney was one of your heroes. You're the youngest ever bloke to get picked to play for Tasmania. Is it a phone call? Is it a letter? How, or how does it work when you find out you're going to play your first game of state cricket? With Booney, no doubt, I guess. You know what? I can't remember how I found out about my first shoe game. Back then, it probably would have been just announced in the paper. Even right. a squad would have been announced in the paper, and um, and your name pops up. Your name pops up. I mean, I'd, I'd done a few uh, pre seasons with the with the state squad. Anyway, certainly did did the pre season with, with the state squad that year before I was picked. And um, yeah, Booney was playing the game. Booney was back to captain that first game. He was back from Aussie duties. We played South Australian Adelaide. Um, I actually thought it was a chance to play the last game of the season before. Michael DiVenuto, obviously a really good friend of mine and was an Australian batting coach, he got picked for his first game in the last game the season before against Queensland in, in Queensland. I thought mm. it might have been a chance to play that one, but didn't get an opportunity there. He played and then we went to Adelaide and I ended up, I think I took his spot in that game So in the, the, the following year. So I ended up rooming with, with Diva. You know, the lead up to the game was uh, pretty nerve-wracking, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, and then on the morning of the game, we the night before the game, Diver and I stayed in the room. We had room service. We watched the movie, and you know the yeah, the, the rooms back then, your, your bed was about two feet apart. Oh, single little, beds, single beds, little alarm clock in the in the table in the middle that was, you know, we'd set to wake us up the next morning, and you know we went off to sleep after the movie. And the next thing I know, there was something ringing next to the bedside table, and I thought it was the alarm, so I sort of leaned over, and when I realised it wasn't the alarm, it was the. The, the room phone ringing, I thought, what's going on here? And I picked the phone up and it was Greg Shippard, the state coach from Adelaide Oval, saying, where, where, where are you blokes? What's going on? Oh. And I then looked, then had another look down at the clock and it's like 
nine o'clock, and Diva and I have completely like we've slept in on it. My, my first shield day, of my first, I mean, my shield career. So you can't imagine that we jumped up, grabbed our bags, went downstairs, got in the cab, got to the ground. Luckily, it had been raining in the morning. We're warming up in the indoor centre. Boonie had obviously had a word to the, all the rest of the squad and told them if any of them even looked at us or spoke to us at all, then you know it was a pretty hefty fine coming our way, and it was. So it was pretty icy walking into the, our first uh, shield warm up. And anyway, the game got underway and ended up getting a few runs. Thankfully, in the first innings that, of that game, I got 56, I think, on debut. But got back to the hotel that night, and when I walked into the room, the alarm was going off in the hotel. We'd actually we'd actually set it for PM and not AM. So a <laughs> little bit of a little bit of a, a mistake from a, a debutant, but um. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot, and I shared a good partnership with Bernie. I think Bernie and I might have put on over a hundred that day. So, and what was it like to bat with a bloke you growing up? Well, he's man a few words. He didn't, right. you know, didn't have a lot to say out in the middle, Bernie. But uh, yeah, once again, the things that you dream about and hope come true are all things. These things are all starting to fall into place now for me at a young age, you know, and, and really quickly. You know, out of school at the age of fifteen, cricket academy for a couple of years, and I'm debuting for, debuting for Tassie at the age of seventeen with a with a childhood hero. So, um, yeah, and it was at the Adelaide Oval where I'd actually. You know, trained a lot with the academy the, the couple of years beforehand, so it all it was starting to feel, you know, pretty natural and and I guess the way that I wanted it to. And when you started to progress, I've only known you since you've been, I guess, thirty nine, forty the last few years, and you're really sort of level headed character. Were you that all the way through? Did you ever in your career see all what you were doing? You're on the telly all of a sudden, and probably starting to get paid more, and people are coming up to you in the street. Did you ever get sidetracked by any of that, or were you always as low key as you are now? I don't think I got. I don't think I got sidetracked by the the fame or notoriety or you know a bit of extra money. I don't think that that wasn't ever a motivating factor for me because it was just about playing. I just wanted to be the best that I could be and make you know make people proud of what I was doing. Really, me and my family in particular, I want to make them proud of everything I was doing. But I, I got caught up in the, I guess, the lifestyle of an international cricketer, if you like, as a young bloke. I mean, I was living my you know, living my teenage years really under the playing cricket for Tassie or playing cricket for Australia and, and, you know, trying to hang out with the big boys and doing, you know, doing the things that they were doing. I wasn't ready for that, you know, and some of the things that happened off the field probably early in my career were, were a result of that. You know, I wasn't doing anything different than anybody else, but I probably just didn't understand the big bad world out there that some of the other guys maybe did, you know, and I sort of found, ended up finding myself in a couple of situations that, I, you know, I wasn't proud of and that I probably, you know, embarrassed my family and embarrassed probably Cricket Australia to a certain degree as well, but um, yeah, well, I learned from those mistakes along the way, and and I had to have a good lad look at myself and say, you know, where are you going? What are you doing here? You know, are you, are you going to be and make the most of what you've got, or are you just going to be happy to be, um, you know, one of the boys at the Mobile Career Club sort of thing? So yeah, I woke I woke up pretty quickly and you know set about trying to make sure that um, you know I was the best person that I could be on a daily basis, let alone the cricket side of things. I mean, that was always going to look after itself, but, right. you know, I had, some, I had some work to do to be the best person I could be, I guess. I guess the, the obvious one is you ended up on the front page of the paper with the, the thing in King's Cross and you had to do a press conference with a, a black eye, I reckon, which, you know, the whole country's seeing you all of a sudden. That's got to be hard to deal with when you're talking about you feel like you let down your family. All of a sudden you go from a cricketer and you almost go mainstream then because you, you're on the front page of the paper, not just the back page of the paper, I guess. Well, to be fair, I mean, I was, I was always a little bit shy of, of the media anyway. I didn't handle the media that well as, a, as a, not didn't handle them well, but I, I, it's not a place that I sort of enjoyed or wanted to be. But then all of a sudden you're there for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. and having to talk about things that you're uncomfortable with. I mean, it was one thing to, to front the media and talk about 100 you made and, you know, that was all great. But I, I still didn't enjoy that much. So you can imagine what it was like for me turning up, you know, and, and doing a press conference talking about... Um, you know, the mistake that I made and, and, you know, how regretful I was and, you know, you know, that I, I I was sort of had some pressure on me as well to to say that I had some, you know, problem with the alcohol at times and things like that and that was all part of that. What, from Cricket Australia was saying? Yeah, from yeah, or from outside influences, yeah, so... And did you um, think that was the case or not? No, it wasn't the case. Like I said I was no different than anyone else. Right. You know, we were, that was... You know, the culture around cricket back then was, you know, when a game was over, you went out and enjoyed yourself yep. and make, but make sure you're ready to get and go the next day and train hard in the in the lead up to the next game. But yeah, and as I said, at times it sort of got out of got out of control a little bit. But um, and that's where the learning really had to come for me. You know, time and place, and and make sure you're doing. Um, just realising that, um, 
you know, you're representing your country and you're, in, and you're representing your family first and foremost. And they, they were the things that I had to learn. You know, I, I just, uh, maybe I took that side of things for granted a little bit early on in, in my early playing days. A short break from Ricky. Thanks to all the feedback on social media at MarkHoward03 on Twitter and Facebook. Keep it coming and please, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. A lot of questions that must be said about the reduced output from the pickle and the big penguin. It's not a pay dispute. Don't worry. None of us get paid. Basically, the big bash means I haven't been home to see them, let alone record their thoughts for a podcast. But don't worry, those two will be back soon. Now, next week, our BBL special continues with New Zealand's finest, Brendan McCullum. What about them apples, eh? Wowzers, Baz! A man who was made captain of New Zealand at a very, very difficult time. Dan announced he's going to step down as captain. Um, and then they, they asked myself and Ross to push our cases in like a presidential style election to uh, to present powerpoints for the captaincy, which was just utter. That oh, was ridiculous, to be honest. And what in a boardroom or in a in a meeting room? Yeah, like PowerPoint presentations and all that. It was just a crock shit. It was right. It was terrible. Um, so did you do that? I did, and that was if I made a mistake anywhere along the road, it was actually doing that like that. It's ridiculous. Brendan McCullum next Thursday on the Howie Games. Now back to punter. A big moment this for Ricky Ponting, his uh, first walk out to the crease for a test match innings, and they really are going to gather around him, see if they can make it a little bit tough, he's obviously going to be just a little bit tense, it's a great occasion. You obviously started playing one days and then it comes up every year at the at the Perth test and your debut against Sri Lanka and you, you got your little goatee and you, you're making runs and then what you get 96 and then you got fired out, mm. a bit stiff. I reckon. Looking back on yeah, you, yeah, it might have been a little bit unlucky on uh, on test debut, but um, you know, by the same token, you're probably you're just out in the middle, and once again, you're, you're living that you're living out that dream, and and when that become that comes closer and closer, where your chance of making a hundred on your test debut, yeah. then the ultimate dreams, you know, hope, you know, might becoming reality. But do you remember getting your cap then? Because you talked about. <laughs> Your uncle's cap and having a look at it, do you remember getting your cap? Was it, it was the same thing? No, there wasn't. No, there were no, no presentations then. It was just Which part is a great of, thing in modern cricket now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, you would have handed over a few. I did, and it was. I, I actually felt it was my responsibility to, as the captain, to to do it. Um, and I felt the players would really have um, respected the fact that they were receiving their cap from their captain and I mean it's changed now it's, it's moved on now and you know lots of past players are doing mm. the cap presentations now which is a, you know a really nice touch as well but no that wasn't around when I debuted it was just uh, it turned up in your kit with your training gear and your, and your playing shirts was it? yeah you just stuck it on and off you went and even, just, and even before that I mean you can ask Junior tonight when we get to the game, but I think they used to get one every season. They used to get a brand new cap every year, but um, that changed pretty quickly when a few of them started turning up on auction sites and things. But <laughs> so uh, you know, I had well, I was hoping to play my whole career with the one the one baggy green cap, but that didn't eventuate because I think after about maybe ten or fifteen, twenty tests, mine actually got stolen out of my out of my kit bag on a on a tour from Sri Lanka on the way home from Sri Lanka. So your baggy green, baggy green did. So I had to, uh, I had to write a letter to Cricket Australia to uh, you know sign a few forms to say that I had lost it and that they give me another one. And and from that moment, when they when I got the second one, then it travelled with me the whole time. It was in my backpack, on my person the whole time. I wasn't leaving it uh, in my kit bag. Oh well, bold, big appeal there for Obi He's got it. He's given him out. Obi That's hit him high on the leg. That's a very very disappointed Ricky Ponting. Well, you can see him just holding there. Disappointing moment that is for him. He's played so very, very well. So you walk off for 96 in your first test innings. Are you absolutely stoked or are you absolutely gutted? Nearly cried. Did you? Mm. When I got back in the room. Because uh, you, you, <laughs> you sort of forget about how emotionally charged you're. Like you're getting up towards what's probably the biggest moment of your entire life. I mean, that, that walking out on test debut or being selected is the biggest moment of your life. But then you're out there in the heat of battle and you're about to make 100 on debut. Your emotion, you can imagine what's going on with your emotions. I mean, and then to be so close and have it taken away when I didn't feel like I actually did too much wrong and, and you're walking off the ground with someone else's mistake, costing you what... I think at that stage it might have only been a, a dozen or ten people that have made 100 on test debut. So it would have been nice to join that club. But mm. and then I got back in and then you sit down, look down and you think... And I just remember all that emotion started coming out. and it was, I might not really cried, but it was just a... Yeah, it was a pretty tense time because we, uh, I think we might have declared soon after and we're straight back out in the field. But um, so I didn't have that much time to think about it. How many tests did you play before you felt comfortable that you were a part of the side and and you weren't going out there batting for your spot every innings? Um, oh look, I think there was a real shift for me. I, I played 
I don't know how many it was. I'm, not, I'm never good with stats or anything like that or numbers, but I played a lot of test matches batting down the order. I mean, that debut was at number five, and yeah, then after yeah, that ended right. up slotting into the order at number six. And to tell the truth, I was never that comfortable there. I never felt like I was a you know, an, an instrumental or solid part of the team until I got the opportunity to move up and bat at number three. When I, when I made that move up there, for me, that was when it was right. Okay, this... You know, you're going to get your chance up the order. Um, and Steve Ward had moved me up there on a, on a tour in England, actually. So, um, yeah, and that's, I think that was when, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, the time that I met Rihanna and certain things happened in my life where things really started to change. But if, if I can, if someone asked me, I talk about it, uh, giving that, getting the opportunity to bat at number three in the test team because it was um, the extra responsibility that came with that I was happy with. I, I wanted the extra responsibility. I wanted to be the best player in the team. I wanted to be the best player in the world. And I, I didn't think I could do that at number six. It was um, just a really foreign place for me to bat. So, uh, but when I got that opportunity, that's when things started to change. Where did you meet Rihanna? Met Rihanna in Melbourne, of all places. I was still living in Tassie, and she was living in, in Sydney or living in Bulleye. So it was a Boxing Day night, and she was over there with a, with, in Melbourne with a family. Her grandfather had always had this great plan of wanting to take all, his whole family to Melbourne for a Boxing Day test because he, her grandfather's a cricket tragic, and as huh. is her brother. And um, Andy Bickle and I were the only guys in Melbourne for Christmas that didn't have our families there, so we went out for dinner together and ended up being in the same restaurant as Rihanna and her family. And, yeah, her brother came over to say good day to... The two cricketers that were there, and then she came over to grab her brother away, and um, yeah, that's where it all sort of began. And um, what was Had a bit it, of a chat? What was it about Rihanna? Without getting, you know, oh, well, what was it about Rihanna that she stood out from other people you'd met in your life? I guess I'll tell you the thing I liked about her the most is she had no idea about cricket, right? And still doesn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so she wasn't ever talking to me because she knew who I was or what I did or anything. She was um, we were having a chat. I don't know. I'm not sure really how it sort of came about, but. Um, yeah, she was she was just a different person than I'd ever, I'd ever met before, and what well, didn't take long for me to realise that she was someone that I wanted to spend a, a lot of my life with, and so I met her that night, invited her on a date the next day, and then six months later I think we were engaged. So things happened pretty quickly. What's a date with Ricky Ponting? Is it movie? Yeah, it was pretty good nice actually. Yeah, was it? No, it wasn't I'll, bad. I'll be the judge of that. Tell <laughs> me how you rolled it out. I had to buy a book and read up about it first. <laughs> what, a, what a date! What a date actually looked like. But, um, no, we so we're in Melbourne. Um, I invited her to a really nice seafood restaurant at the casino, the waterfront. Okay. And we sat down there and albeit mid-test, so we did share a bottle of wine and whatever at dinner. So, But it was a, a nice uh, romantic evening, yeah, and then dropped her back at the hotel and off I went to get a night's sleep before test cricket the next day. You mentioned that she didn't have any idea about cricket. Does it become hard when you meet people socially or wherever and they know who you are and what you do? Does it is it hard to think that they are they liking me for me or because I'm Ricky Ponting the Australian captain or do you have to be defensive in that way I've never thought about it like that no right. I mean I've always just thought about the people who are interested in 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 you or interested in the game and want to talk to you about the game um, and to be fair they're not going to get much more conversation out of me other than things no. about about cricket no, um, and that's what they want to talk to you about so I've never shied away from that I mean I I never changed the way that I lived my life or what I did when I was playing or when I was captain. If Rana and I wanted to go out somewhere, we'd go out. If we want to go to a nice restaurant, we'd do that. I'd never, I was never staying away from from people or, um, you know, you just had to be a little bit smarter about times and places and things that you did, I guess. But you just have to understand that. And this is one thing that I didn't understand when I got into the trouble in the early days, which is just how big it was to the average Joe and that you were playing cricket for Australia. You know, I, I was living out a dream but not thinking about what these other people's dreams might have been as well. And, 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 and some people, a lot of people want to see you do well. There's others out there that don't like to see you do too well and that's what I learned along the way. But um, So when I could think about it from someone else's shoes about what I was doing, then obviously you become a lot more giving to the average person and, and especially kids. You know, and, and it was only yesterday. I went to the test match yesterday, which is the first day of test cricket I've been to since since I retired, That if I haven't been commentating. And just to sit there and listen to the crowd and listen to the kids and, and see what it means to, for them to see David Bourne at bat and young Renshaw make his first 100, then it starts to really sink in about what I was doing, you know, and how much it meant to others about what we were doing. Because you don't, as a player, you don't have a chance to sit back and think about it. You... As busy as you are and you've got family commitments of your own and things and you just don't have a chance even at night to sit back and switch off and think about what had happened that day. You think about what you're going to do the next day. So, um, What a special yeah. thing to – and there's, there's people in the Big Bash now, blokes playing, that are starting to come through. What a special thing it must be when you hear, oh, I grew up watching Ricky Ponting and I wanted to play cricket for 
Australia or for my state and now they're playing mm. at that level. It must be it's a it's a pretty cool thing to be able to inspire people, punt. Yeah, it is and I was I mean when I say I wasn't aware of that, I was aware, I was aware of it because I, I wanted to inspire people. I wanted people to look up to what I was doing and, and want to do what I was doing. You know, that, I think that's the important thing when you're representing your country or your state is you know, you're setting an example that other people want to follow and you know so I was you know I was aware of that side of things and as I said even with my family you know every time I walked down the ground I was about trying to make them proud of what of what I was doing as well and sit back and say yeah, that's you know that's my boy or that's you know whatever doing what he's doing for Australia so that's that's a nice thing to be able to look back on as well but um yeah, those days are almost gone now, Howie. Though I'm 42 and been retired for a while, a lot of those you don't meet a lot of people now that say they were they were looking up to the way that uh, I used to play. The big bash kids, <laughs> the big bash kids are all they're at David Warren now, aren't they? Absolutely. Have you met Have you met someone along the way that's made a big impact on you? Because I'm sure across the gamut you would have met top athletes, politicians, states people. You must have met some amazing people. Just the people that can even come through the Australian dressing room. Is there people that have made an impression on you in the in the short time you've had to meet them or not? Not high profile people like that. No, I think I was. A lot of my stuff was shaped well before I even played for Australia. I think the person I was was shaped before that stuff came along, and I wasn't mixing with those sort of people. Then I was mixing with the you know the guys at the Mowbray Cricket Club and um, who were making sure that I was you know had my head on the right way and that I was being looked after the right way. I mean, and they're the, they're the things that I sort of can't replace and can't give enough back as well. You know. I, I was playing A-grade cricket when I was 12 or 13 and had guys that had been playing A-grade cricket for 20 years looking after every move, every step that I took. If I looked over my shoulder, I had one of the big boys behind me that were looking after me everywhere I went. And So back in those days, I had guys like Ian Young, who was a club stalwart. His son, Sean Young, played a lot lot for for Tassie and played a test match as well in England. He was a guy that looked after me like you wouldn't believe. You know, he would bowl balls to me, throw throw balls to me, he'd ring me every day, checking how things were going, if he spotted something with my batting or whatever that he thought he could help me with. You know, gave me my first job, brought me my first pair of cricket shoes. you know all that sort of stuff. They were the sort of people that influenced me the most. And and you know when things move along, and you know Greg Shipper was the other one that that I can't thank enough. He was my first state coach and just a great person to talk cricket with, and someone that understood me, understood my game, and that's all I ever wanted from anybody was someone that understood me and understood my technique and could therefore help me whenever I needed some some help. But um, you know, and then when you start playing for Tassie, you start playing for Australia, become the Australian captain. Of course, you can mix in those sort of circles if you want. I mean, you could be out. Yeah, you know, you could probably be having dinner with the prime minister every night if you, if you wanted to. Certainly back then, when John Howard was prime minister, he would have had dinner with me every night of the week, I guess. But but that wasn't you. That wasn't me at all. Functions, you know, gala openings, things like that. Wasn't I? Wasn't I? Was, That's wasn't. where you send Gillian, wouldn't it? Gillian's pretty handy in that yeah, sort of situation. Yeah, very good in that yeah, situation. So what, what's it like, mate? You, use some words to describe being the Australian captain. Is like, is it fun? Is it easy? Is it testing? Is it hard? Is it stressful? What's it like to be? the Australian cricket captain? Well, at different times, it's every one of those words you just mentioned. Um, first and foremost, for me, it was an honour and, and something that, one, I'd never set out to do. I'd never, you know, I wanted to play cricket for Australia, but I'd never really ever dreamed about being captain because captaincy hadn't come my way a lot as a young bloke because I was always the young bloke. You know, yeah. I was 13 <laughs> in the under-17s or 15 in the under-19s, under so you're never going to be captain when you're young like that, 17 in the state side, whatever, playing for Australia at 20. It, so, yeah those roles never came along but so I never I never dreamt of that but um, so what was your high point as the Australian captain you had so many highs like as World Cups and Ashes what was your what was your high point being the Australian captain oh I actually don't know I, I know the the fondest memory I have and, and, and it's not going to be anything you think of it's not going to be the 2000 World Cup 2003 World Cup final it's not going to be that it's not going to be the 5-0 Ashes win in Australia it's a, a series we played in South Africa very soon after all of our legends had retired, so Gilly, um, Haydos, Lang, Mardo, Warney, McGrath, all those guys are gone pretty much in 12 months. Yeah. And we'd had, we'd played South Africa and Australia and they'd beaten us in a series that I felt had just sort of slipped away from us a little bit. Um, they were the number one ranked team in the world at the time. So we played them here and then we went straight to South Africa to play them in three more games over there. And Phil Hughes made his debut, Peter Siddle debuted, Hilfen House was there, Haddon was there. Um, Nathan Horrocks was there, Marcus North was there, Andrew McDonald. We had all these fresh young blokes. Mitchell Johnson was a young bloke coming through. And we uh, we went to Johannesburg and because we were such a young and inexperienced team, um, I was, okay, it was up to me to stand up now and make a bit of a statement on on, on Australian cricket and, and this series if I could. And it was an absolute green top in Joburg. And I thought, right, I won the toss and I thought, well, I'm batting because I've got to be the one that stands. I'm going to 
try and get something done here. It was green, as you can imagine. Pup and I managed to get through the first session a bit. Um, Pup might have got fifty. I got. I think I got ninety. Marcus North came in and debuted. He made a hundred. He made a hundred on debut that game. Um, and we ended up winning winning a test match really easy against a really good South African side. Um, so we're one nil up. We go to Durban. Same thing. Yeah, about first. Husey makes a hundred in each innings. Hmm. Um, we beat him there. So we're two nil up. Series over. And um, we, we, as I said, we we're in the field. And I, I was walking off the field, and I deliberately walked about 30, 40 metres ahead of the rest of the group. And I stood on the boundary line. And I just want I wanted to look back and just see what it meant to Hughes and Siddle and all these boys to win their first ever test series against the number one team in the world away from home. So I stood there and looked back and all these young blokes had their arms around each other, they were all holding stumps up, you know, that you just couldn't believe. And I'd been there a thousand times. I won all these series before, so it was, you know, it wasn't anything new to me, but to them it was something extra special. And, and when I saw that unfold, that was the moment that, that I sort of walk away, take away has probably been the most special of my captaincy time anyway for Australia. And is there an innings that stands out amongst you? <laughs> 41 test hundreds and all your one day international hundreds and is there an innings where you thought that's I can't bat much better than that oh, they, look there are probably a, there are a few that are once again hard to sort of separate the, you know the 2003 World Cup final was pretty special because it was you know my first my first big tournament as captain we'd gone we'd lost Gillespie and Warren before a ball was bowled um and we're playing a, a very good Indian team in the final, and you know, as a captain, it was my turn to stand up, and you know, walked off 140 not out, and shared a, I think, a world record partnership with Damien Martin at the time, and posted 360 in a World Cup final. You're walking off, then you just think, well, that's that's done, game's over. You know, we've we've stood up and we've done it here. He told me about that game where he was in, he had a problem with his hand, broken finger on the Howard games, and he was trying to pull out, and it was you and. I don't know if it was Merv as a selector. I don't know. I, my memory fails me now, but definitely you were telling him, mate, you're right to go. He, he, you're ready to play. And he said it's one of the great moments of his career that you guys talked him around to go out and bat and obviously batted with you and made runs. Yeah, it was. A, he had a badly broken finger, but I was desperate for him to play because he played right the way through. He was an experienced player. And Mardo was one of those guys that when things got at their toughest, he played his best. If you think about some of the... Um, test tours to India and Sri Lanka where yeah. conditions were hard he found a way and got it done and most people that looked at him and the way that he played and probably don't see that side of him they see the other side of him and you know the the arrogance and the swagger and the, and the class with the way he plays but they don't, they don't see the other side of Damien Martin very often and I remember going to him a couple of days before the game and said look needle it up needle it for me today get through training today and I'll, I'll watch you catch a few balls and I'll watch you hit a few balls and then when you're finished look me in the eye and tell me you can play because I want you to play and morning of the game, I went to him and said, look me in the eye and tell me you can play. He looked at me and said, I can play. And he went out and played it, right? He got, I think he was 88 not out or something. Yeah. And yeah. Once again, special moments in, in your career, you know. And it's, it's nice to hear blokes like that say things that you... Because men don't generally share those things with you there and then, but those stories will sort of come out as, as the years roll on. But So that, look, that innings was extra special. Um, and even little things that happened in the game. You know, I, I said at, when the drinks... 12th man came out at the 35 over mark or something. I was only, it took me about 70 balls to get to 50. And because the game was so under control that, and was scoring quickly, I wanted to make sure I was there at the end. And the 12th man came out and I said, uh, tell the boys back there to strap the seatbelts on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm just going to go flat out from now and see what happens. And I got most of them in the middle from there on in and walked off Yeah, at the end of the innings. Yeah. Conversely, we've talked about the highs. What about the other side of it, which is professional sport? As you know better than anyone, what's been your low point when you're in charge of the team? Well, no doubt losing 2005 Ashes as a captain, was that was the the absolute low point of captaincy for me um, and probably low point for, for most of those players of their careers, I'd imagine. You know, we were a, we'd been so used to dominating, being a champion team for a long time. We went to England, you know, expected to win quite comfortably. We won the first test on our ear. Um, yeah. You know, things turned around pretty quickly in the second test match. Glenn um, McGrath stood on the ball. Glenn McGrath stood on the ball. We lost that game by a run. Um, you know, there's much talked about about me winning the toss and bowling that game and things like that. And um, Yeah, it was just one of those series where we were just a little bit off, but every time there was just something happening in most games that was sort of out of our control and the momentum went and or we were controlling it and we'd have a run out or something like that would just happen that... You know, you look back now and just wonder how those things happened. But it, it also, as it started to unfold, it also became pretty clear that we might have been a bit complacent with the way we were going about it. We had every other team in the world chasing what we were doing. England were going out of their way 
with what they were spending on coaches. They'd had all Australian coaches gone in over there. You know, Duncan Fletcher was a head coach, Troy Cooley, but was a bowling coach. Rod Marshall was in charge of the academy. They looked at our model in Australia and said, we're going to do whatever we, whatever it takes, how much it takes, whatever it takes. We're going to you know, do whatever yeah. we can to catch up to these boys. And that was when they started to catch up, you know. Even with the way that they'd prepared, you know, the reverse swing bowling, they prepared dry wickets knowing that Warney was going to have an impact, but they felt they had an edge over us with the reverse swing, and they did. Um, so, look, they were well, well drilled, um, well led. They played well, and, and we were just a little bit off in a few areas. And, and you know, as, as I said, that's the... That's the, the low point of my career. Then we got back to Australia when we sat down and addressed things in a way that, in a more open and honest way than I'd ever seen a, a cricket team deal with anything as, a, as, a, as an organisation as well, not just as a group of players, but all contracted players, all administrators. We sat down and we got to the bottom of what we needed to do and how we are going to get better. And then, you know, the next 12 months was, uh, was just about the most special 12 months I've played, I think. Why was it different to what you'd seen a cricket team do before? Because we'd become a bit more aware of... Um, of what other teams were doing to try and catch up and we hadn't really moved. We were plateauing um, with lots of things, not just the group of players that we had, but what was behind us in the state system at the, at the centre of excellence, all that sort of stuff. We hadn't kept trying to take the things forward to a degree that we needed to do it to ensure that we stayed the number one team in the world. So a lot of those things were addressed and... Um, yeah, we turned things around pretty quickly as a playing group and, and probably, you know, the administrators did as well. From the outside looking in, as I said, I didn't know you at that stage, the, the one point to me where it looked like just watching on telly that you just had a gut full of it all was when everything happened with Andrew Simons and the Indians and you'd, you'd still have to front up and do the press conferences and you can explain the background better than me, but to me at that point it looked like if someone had said to you, mate, you can walk out the door and go and disappear and spend time with your family, you might have done it. That's how it looked. Yeah, no, look, I, I wouldn't have done it because it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, the other 11 or 12 teammates of mine and that was the way that captaincy always was for me. Um, even when I, even my playing days. I mean, I, to be totally honest, if it was just about me, I probably would have retired after my 100th test. Things couldn't get any better in my career at, at that point, you know. I was averaging over 60 as a batter. Mm. I just made 100 in each innings in my 100th test. I played in winning World Cup teams. I won Ashes series, done most things in my career. There was it wasn't much more for me to gain, but it wasn't ever about that for me. You know, I'm looking at the young guys that come into the team. I needed to be around for them, to guide them, to help them, to show them. Um, even when I stood down from the captaincy, it would have been easy just to walk away from that as well and say, okay, well, I'm not captain anymore, so I'm not playing. But no, there were young guys coming in that I was worried about, you know, and I wanted to help and I wanted to I wanted to be around to see them blossom and turn into better players. So, um, but with this and with this Simon's thing, I mean. It, you can see how his career ended. He'd had enough. He didn't know who to trust and who he could um, talk to and if the people that were supposed to have his back actually had his back or not. And that, you know, I've, I was the same. I felt let down as well by the whole thing. It, it wasn't... It didn't work out the way that it should have for, for Simo and, and for Australian cricket and, to tell the truth, probably for world cricket because it just just allowed India to show how much power yep. that they had on the world game and if Cricket Australia weren't going to stand up for them then who was going to stand up against India um, so they were, the, they were the positions that I was coming from if you like and I mean, and, and the charge the way it was I mean the racial vilification thing Well, I've been in meetings for 15 years being told about how I'm supposed to handle racial vilification and what I'm supposed to do and then when the, when the moment came and I handled it the way that I was supposed to and Cricket Australia instructed me to handle it that didn't back us up, so that was, uh, that was difficult. Hope you're enjoying Ricky Ponting. Please subscribe to the Howie Games so you don't miss an episode with the likes of Greg Norman, Damian Martin, Ange Postacoglu, Brendan Favola, Lane Beachley, Darren Sammy and plenty more. For mine, though, check out two names you may not be familiar with, Jack Jones and Jake Edwards, two men who had huge impacts on me for different reasons. Check out all the episodes anyway. Last week, well, it involved a gentleman by the name of Peter Siddle, gun bowler and a dedicated vegan. I cop criticism, yes. I, I, I'll admit it now. I play sport with with leather, leather, um, yep. leather balls and stuff. Which, which, yeah, I have to, I have to deal with that. But I started the game before I made my life do you, choices. Do you think about that now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah I do. Really? And I, I cop a lot of stuff, like a lot, a lot of um, criticism for it, which is which is fine. I'm happy with that. But from the plant-based world and the and the ve- the vegan sort of the mindset and that what what the game has given me and the changes I've made it's given it's given me the voice and it's given me the platform to be mm. able to address these things. That was last Thursday's episode with Peter Siddle. Back to Ricky Ponting. The the Ponting Foundation, you and Rihanna, um, how much have you raised? 
so far? Do you know off the top of your head a general amount that you've raised for kids that have well, had cancer? Over the years, so we've had our we've we've had our foundation for six or seven years, but before that, we had another five or six years of of fundraising for the CCIA, which is the Children's Cancer Institute of Australia. Which is, to be fair, we probably back then and when we um, you know were running and organising huge gala dinners a few times a year that were bringing in a lot of money. So and things you know the last five or six years have tightened up significantly around you know charity events and stuff, but. What we do know is that I mean it's it's significant amount of money that we're talking about, um, but what we know is it's it's the the number of people, number of families that we're that we're influencing. That is the you know that's the the motivator. So why do you get into that? Like you're cruising along, you're an international cricketer, you've got a young family to look after, you've got a fair bit on your plate. Why then go and give your time, which is very valuable because you're never at home, to help children with cancer in your situation like what's you know, the, the simple answer to that how is because i can right because i'm in a position where i can actually help yeah okay. and i feel that people in positions like us we are the ones that have to do it because if we don't no one no one the average joe blow that walks down the street can't just get a group of people together and sponsors and things and raise money so i did it because i knew i could you know my profile was on the rise i had good corporate support around me um you know they could bring on other corporate support. You know, the the links and the chains that I was sort of all of a part of were giving me and Rihanna the opportunity to help people. And, you know, our charity, my giving before that would be you get a phone call from or a message from someone (laughs) saying, look, I'm running a night tomorrow night. Have you got a shirt or a bat that you can send along to help us raise money? Um, And you get 20 of those a week and you do it every week. But then I sat down with Phil Kearns, actually, the ex-Wallaby captain at a sort of a business lunch and... I asked him what he did as far as charity work was concerned and he was on the board of the CCIA at the time and um, he said, "Would you, are you interested in helping kids? I said, mate, my life's about kids. You know, I love kids and I had opportunities as, as a young bloke that I'd love to be able to give back and he said, well, I'll organise a visit to the hospital for you um, tomorrow if you want to go. So Rihanna and I um, <clears throat> got up and went to the, the Royal Children's in, in Sydney and walked in there not really with no idea. We'd never been influenced or affected by childhood cancer in any of our families or even cancer to that degree so he walked walked into the hospital and the first thing we saw was a six-month-old baby boy that had just been diagnosed with leukemia in his father's arms and mum and dad were in the ward and they'd moved in from the country and had to give up their jobs and um it's pretty confronting and then so we saw that we moved you know a few other rooms and all the stories were you know were quite similar about how it affected families and we as i said we'd never seen it before but it was um and then we got to the chemotherapy part of the ward, but there was a 13-year-old boy that had just gone through his, his daily um, dose of chemo and he's laying back on his bed and he's attached to all his machines and tubes coming out of him everywhere. And he must have been a cricket fan because, as you know, with the chemo wards, they're all open glass areas, yeah. you know, sterile environments. No one can come in, no one can go out sort of thing. But I got up close to the glass and he sort of looked over and saw me in the window and he sort of sat up in bed and his face sort of lit up and... He wanted to, because he couldn't come out and I couldn't come in, he wanted to get over as close as he could to the window and he, he sat up in bed and then put his feet on the ground and basically as soon as his feet hit the ground he just vomited all over the place because of the pain that he was he was going through. He just threw up everywhere and, you know, the nurses came in rushing in and put laying him back down, cleaned him up and put him back down to bed again and, you know, so it was... Rana and I walked out at the end and we got out the front and we kept it together inside but we got out the front and both of us just started bawling our eyes out you know what what we'd just seen and and then that was the line in the sand it was right from from now on we're gonna we're doing whatever we can to help these people because and then as you know as that started we you know we've we've actually got a research laboratory at the ccia named after us now so that was nice recognition for you know what we've done for the for fundraising for that organization and um and then the more that we're involved in in children's cancer the more that we've started finding little gaps and holes that need, needed attention. So we went away from CCI only to starting our own foundation so we could start directing the money in areas that we felt that, um, you know, cancer treatments and looking after parents and patients um, needed. So it wasn't just... The kids get great treatment, you know, they mm. they looked after exceptionally well, but there were, you know, little things with the families and siblings and things that we wanted to be able to influence as well. So, um, you know, that's where most of our money uh, will go to now. I'm a big believer in karma, and I reckon I really am. And I think if you do the right thing, and if you do the wrong thing, I reckon it comes and gets you every way. And uh, you got a beautiful young family. And when we started the big bash, not that you said much about the time, your young bloke got sick. He didn't have cancer, mm. but little Fletch got really crook. And and then all of a sudden, I guess you're on the other side of the equation because you were the you were the parent in hospital with a young bloke who who wasn't going that well. Yeah. So yeah, Fletch when he was 
was it six weeks old, I think, when he was first uh, when he first had his issue. He had a, he had a um, like a meningitis type infection that um, yeah knocked him around big time. I mean, as as I said, he was six weeks old, so he couldn't really tell us what was going on. We had no idea what was going on, but he he basically lost everything. He was almost unconscious. He we couldn't wake him, we couldn't stir him, we couldn't do anything. He was unresponsive to everything, and yeah, so it. Uh, yeah, we had three weeks in intensive care with him, just trying to get to the bottom of, of what had happened. But what's that like as a dad? Um, oh, I mean, his second one was probably worse, to tell the truth, because he. Well, well, they're both pretty similar. It was, it was three lots of two uh, two lots of three weeks at a time in intensive care, where um, you're just not really sure what's going to happen. But um, now he got through the first one fine, and then when he got to six months of age, he had an, another pretty serious infection that we didn't know anything about the doctors didn't know much about and yeah that was the scariest one because he was sort of shut down for well he was I think uh sedated for about four or five days at, at one stage with um, where he couldn't open his eyes and um yeah yeah I can obviously see the effect it has on you mate which is why it's um <laughs> now you've got me upset that's what happens when you've got young kids mate um Fucking deep breath and get on with it, eh? Um, never done that before. I've spoken about him a lot of times, but that's never happened before. So anyway, move on. Well, I, I guess, therefore, coming back to what we were talking about, the Ponding Foundation, imagine what you've done for bloody mums and dads out there. Oh, that's better than making 40 centuries and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, of course it is, and that's what that's what motivates us to yeah. keep, keep doing it on a daily basis. You know, well, I've got a bit more time now to do it, and Rihanna's got probably less time now with the three kids, but, uh, you know, I was always just the really the, the name and the face to what was happening in the background. She was the one that was doing most of the work, but, um, yeah, now I've got a bit more time, then we can we can do it a bit more seriously and start having more of an impact and influence, if you like, on uh, on families around Australia, yeah. We better lighten it up, I reckon. I reckon we better lighten it up. Well, we're right. I think I'm right now. <laughs> we gotta, just, don't, just don't talk about Fletcher anymore. We've we got, we got to get to work, so mm. we better lighten up a bit. Mate, um, the Big Bash... Um, I remember when Channel 10 signed it um, and let's put the cards on the table. We'd never done it before and you blokes came in and it was yourself, me, Dave Barr and the boss and security said to us, oh, Darren Fleming's downstairs and I thought, shit. (laughs) Ricky Ponding's just come to Channel 10 rather than Channel 9. The security blokes called him Darren Fleming. Why'd you come to Channel 10 when they hadn't done any cricket um, and you didn't know anyone, and the obvious path for any Australian captain is to step into the Channel 9 commentary box and do that if you wish for the next 30 years. To be totally honest, I just I just liked the feel of what was about to happen. I liked the group of people that they put together. Um, I was excited. I'd, I'd been playing a bit of the T20 game as well, and I had an idea of where the T20 game was going to go. Um, I must admit, I wasn't sure exactly where... Cricket Australia were going to take the big bash and what it was going to turn into, but I think we've all made a pretty good decision to to do what we've done over the last couple of years. Um, and the, I mean, the other factor with it as well is that you know, with uh, I think Channel Nine just expected I was going to walk out of the team and walk straight into the into the commentary box as well. And I'm, I'm sure I would have enjoyed that. I would have liked working with those guys as well. But the the truth of it is that when I'd finished, you know, the travel side of things and being away for a week at a time and or a few weeks at a time, that wasn't that appealing to me anymore. And I knew I was going to have other jobs. There's going to be the IPL stuff that's going to come along. And so if you think about that's a couple of months during the winter months. If you do the Channel 9 stuff, you're pretty much three or four months nonstop during the Australian summer. I probably wasn't ready for that straight out of out of playing. I, and, and then when I looked at how the Big Bash was going to look and how it was going to come together and... You know, as you keep making mention of every other night, I don't go to Perth many times, so I haven't got as much travel as, as, as some. But um, It's on the other side of the country. It's yeah, on the West Coast. Yeah. It takes four hours to get there. Gilly can look after that side. I'll look after <laughs> this side. But, um, yeah, so that that side of it, even when I do a, you know, do a big bash game, you do it at home, you've got the whole day with your kids before yeah. you've got to go to work. And, I, you know, that's uh, – or hold down the golf course before you've got to go to work. I, I you know, I like that, and I and I like. Uh, I knew, you know, I didn't know you that well, but obviously, the other guys that I was going to be working with, I knew inside out, and I knew they would have a lot of fun along the way. And you know, I just knew also talking to Dave Barham that we weren't going to be under too many restrictions on what we could do and how they wanted us to talk. And you know, it was going to be a bit more relaxed than the way that I, I actually think the game needs to be talked about and explained, if you like. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I'd I'd spoken to the other blokes as I spoke to Gilly and Junior and and Flem and said, look, we're we going to do this together. Yeah, it'd be great if we could all do this together. And I hadn't signed until I knew those guys were going to commit. So um, I wanted to be a part of a, a f- 
a fun group, I guess, and a, and a, and a team that was uh, that was going to we we're going to have a lot of fun. I think that's what we've done. We've just managed to have a a team of people, and that's not just the, you know the half a dozen of us that sit in the commentary box. The people people that work around us, are, you know, we've got a, a great team of people that enjoy doing what they're doing, and and are not happy and satisfied with yesterday's game. You know, we want to make today's game even better again. Uh, we were asked the other day um, for our social media what's been the highlight of the Big Bash, and I said you singing, um, which was it was hilarious. But I guess what I meant by that is when you first started, we were all you know those that hadn't played cricket, we're all, shit, it's Ricky Ponting. And we'd seen you as the captain, we'd seen you do press conferences, and Fleming Gilly, like, nah, nah, he's, he, once you get to know him, he's a really funny bloke. And Dave Barn, the boss, said to me, that, that's our job at 10, is to make everyone understand who Mark War is, who Ricky Ponting is, who Adam Gilchrist is. And I reckon now Australia knows who you are, yeah. As a bloke, and yeah. I reckon that's the, I think that's been the best thing about the Big Bash. Yeah, well, I talked a bit about that in my book as well. Like when I was a player and when I was a captain, um, you know, people saw me with my helmet on. Yeah, that was it. Now I've got my helmet off. You know, and and the barriers and the protection that that helmet gave <laughs> is not there anymore. Um, but I wasn't doing that for my benefit once again. I, I was a guardian to the team. I, I wanted to protect the team. So what I gave to the media was what. I was doing that not because that's how I wanted to do it, but that's how I knew that I could best look after the other blokes, you know. So a lot of the times I'd be really defensive. If I got asked a, qu- a question about a, one of my players, then I don't need to tell you what, you know. I'll look after them yeah. first and I'll look after you second. That's the way it was when I was captain, but it's not that way anymore. I mean, I'm probably, if anything, now going the other way where I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a, you know, going to the... <laughs> The other end of the spectrum where I'm opening up more about lots of little things that uh, are being spoken about publicly, which I'm fine with. You and do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy being able to be the real you, the, the you that probably your mates see? Yeah, well, I don't. I, I'm not, it's not a conscious thing to go that way. It's just that that is me. It's, it's opening up and having a good, honest conversation yeah. with you or Junior on air about just that's it, you know, and that's what I think we're all doing that. We're all probably exposing ourselves more than we ever have before. And Massively. And uh, I think we're enjoying that, and I think the public are enjoying that. But once again, it's not—it hasn't been a preconceived thing of mine. It's just, uh, as you say, probably correctly, that's just me coming out. And you enjoyed after your singing, we're at a pub in Coogee, and people coming up and asking you to sing again. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. Well, I said the other night actually in the game in <laughs> Melbourne that I won't sing again through the course of probably my commentating career, but. If another song comes through about Junior or you, then I might be very tempted to come out of retirement. Mark Orr is an Aussie, he wears a baggy hat. When he saw the bookies cash, he said, I'm having that. He got a good memory. Shared it out with Warnie, they went and had some beers. <laughs> and when the ACB found out, they covered up for years. <laughs> Mark Orr is an <laughs> You know, word for word. You are kidding. <laughs> that is the moment of the Big Bash of mine. Mate, we're getting a bit tight on time here. Um, you've just been appointed... Uh, assistant coach of the T20 side. Congratulations. Hmm. Um, that's exciting, I reckon. I think Australian cricket's really excited by that too. I'm excited by it because I'm excited uh, once again to be forming a little team, if you like. So with, with JL and with Dizzy, that's a, that's our own little team within itself. Um, I'm, so I'm excited to work with those guys. But the, the more I work on this big bash and the more I see some of the talent that we've got around this tournament, then you know it's pretty exciting to work with them as well. Um, and that's what it's all about. I mean, I'm not coming back into coaching to have my name out there or I'm coming back in to try and help young blokes and impart some of what I know about about the game on them. And I know it's only for a week, but that might be the start of something that happens, you know, more down the track. And I hope, I hope it does because I've got a real passion for coaching. I've got a real passion for helping people and, and trying to get the best out of people, which I know is exactly, exactly what Justin Lang is all about as well. And if you look what he's done in WA with... The squad of players that he's got together now, and and you know even someone like a Hilton Cartwright making a Test debut this week, mm. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened if Justin Langer wasn't in charge of Western Australian cricket. So you know, they're the things that you dream about, I guess, as as a as a past you know player that you can you can go back and influence others. Two quick ones. Um, I'm going to grab something off my phone. Two quick ones. Is one bowler you're walking out the bat and you don't want to face? Who is it? One. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably Harbage and Singh. As much as he's a spin, I'm, most people out there will think I'm going to say, "Oh, Shaul Bakhtar wasn't Macram because they're, they're big and fast and nasty." But I don't know. Harbage got me out more than any other, and they're the ones you fear the most. The ones you think you the best chance of getting you out. So um, I'll, I'll probably say him, and he'll be doing cartwheels around <laughs> Chandigarh if he ever gets to hear that. But uh, oh, how are we going? Big in India. He'll be listening. Don't <laughs> yeah, worry. Don't yeah. worry. And if there's one bloke working, walking out to bat with you, and you need runs, who is it? 
I'll take my little mate Justin out with me, right. Justin Langer. Yeah, look, we've and I've heard him describe it as well over the years. He calls me his his little brother, and I prefer him the other way as well. You know, we we went our f- well. My first tour was was to the West Indies in '95, and that was alongside him. Neither of us played. We trained together. We we sat and watched everyone together. We talked about the game endlessly, and then we got a chance to play a lot together um, through the years. You know, be, before I became the captain, I was the one that sung the team song for the Australian team, and that, Ian Healy had passed it on to me. And when I became captain, you know, the tr- tradition is that the captain can't sing the song, so I passed it on to him as well because he, I felt that he was the one that sort of epitomised what Australian cricket and the baggy green was all about. So. Um, yeah, it's, as if you want to have you know some fun with someone in the middle, it'd be nice to do it with someone that you thought was like your brother, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always finish the podcast. You know, I've got two kids: the pink uh, penguin, big penguin, and the pickle. And we always finish off with them asking a question of the guest. I tell them about them. Um, I couldn't get this on in person because I haven't seen it for two weeks, as you're well aware. I think uh, this was recorded by the pickle, and she had this for you. Pickle here, me and the big penguin love playing cricket with daddy. Do you play cricket with your kids? And why does our daddy always have to wear the pink shirts on the big bash and you never have to? Really good question. Really good question, but obviously a scripted one from you. <laughs> <laughs> obviously she's, re- she's reading that out. She's reading that out. about the cricket. I was more interested in the shirt. She's reading that out. Um, my girl's a little bit of cricket. My oldest one, Emmy's eight. She... Fletcher's just got a little cricket set for Christmas and as with my house, I don't have a lot of cricket memorabilia or stuff no. hanging around my house. It's, more, it's mainly golf stuff that I have around my house at the moment. So the girls haven't, well, the kids haven't seen a lot of cricket bats and stuff around the house, but they're, she, uh, she, Emmy picked up Fletcher's stuff the other day out in the tennis court and she was pretty happy to hit about 15 tennis balls straight over the backyard fence <laughs> and they're all out in, the, out in the street. She lost every ball. Um, but Fletcher, yeah, he's uh, he's... Just turned two. He was two in September. He cannot leave a golf club, a cricket bat, or any sort of ball alone, a footy or a golf ball or tennis. We can't leave him alone. So, um, and uh, to be fair, because he only just got the little cricket set, he's probably more in love with the golf club and a golf ball than he is with a cricket bat just yet. But I'm pretty sure that'll that'll change quickly. And the second half of the question: Why do I? Oh, I don't get know what she's talking shirt. about with the with the pink shirt. Have you ever worn? The I pink had shirt? a fair run with the pink shirt last year, oh, actually. When you, and I'd be sitting next to you, and you'd be putting <laughs> pointing the finger at me, and just laughing about the pink shirt. But it looks like uh, you said you're a big believer in karma. Well, it looks like it's just coming back. <laughs> it's just coming back to get you. Hey, Rick, I really appreciate your time, mate. Thanks for being so open, so honest. We better get to the cricket, but um, I'm sure people are going to live. I love this episode, mate. Good on you, mate. Cheers, mate. Ah, what a star is Ricky Ponting. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did sitting down with the great man. Thanks to you all, as always, for listening. Keep an eye out for next week's episode of the Howie Games featuring Brendan McCullum. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.